Thanks, Lainey. Keep that open in front of you. We'll be looking at verses 10 to 20 today. It's not that last little bit. Now, this is our final week in Ephesians. Uh, next week, for the last three weeks of semester, we're going to blitz Leviticus. Um, and if you thought that was impossible, well, watch us. Um, and I'm hoping that it's going to be a fantastic uh, three-week jaunt in an Old Testament book. We've been doing a lot of prep for it already. I'm very excited to kind of unpack it. So I hope you will come along and be excited too. But because it's our last day um, and last week in Ephesians, I thought we'd start by playing a game just to celebrate. Uh, and the game is called, What Weapon Would You Reach For? Now, I don't know about you, but on occasions in my life, I might be sitting at my home with not much to do. And I think to myself, if a home invader suddenly burst in at this moment, what would I grab to protect myself? Now, just, just a straw poll. Does, has anyone ever played that game in, in, in their own mind? Okay, I'm sad that it's all the girls, I don't know where that places me into a different spot, uh, but it's nice to know that I'm not the only one who's paranoid in life. Uh, and the one positive benefit of this, because let's be real, no one's ever going to burst into your home and do this, is you'll become fairly acquainted with every stick-like object, every knife and every heavy brick object in your house and their immediate whereabouts. Uh, but like I mentioned, the sort of person who asks that question tends to be paranoid and highly anxious like these three lovely ladies in the, the front of the auditorium. But in today's passage, Paul asks a similar question. He asks, Christian, when you are attacked, what weapon will you reach for? And he asks that question not because he's paranoid, but because he is acutely aware that to be a Christian is to be under threat every day. And if we're oblivious to that threat, that when it rears its head, we'll be caught unawares. Uh, and in our panic, what we'll do is we'll either have nothing to defend ourselves with, or we'll do something really stupid like grab a cushion when we should have grabbed the knife from the kitchen. And so today we've got really simple. There's only two things that we're going to be looking at. They're there in your outline. We want to look at who the enemy is, and then we want to look at what we need to grab to defend ourselves when they burst through the door. That's all it is today. Uh, so let's start with that first one. We're going to start with our real enemy. And we see it there at the beginning of our passage. Uh, Paul tells us about our real enemy in verse 11. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, when you do a kind of a, a brief biography of Paul, you'll realize that he's no stranger to wrestles with flesh and blood. Uh, in your own time, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and you'll see that he has sustained physical attack. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked multiple times. But as far as he's concerned, despite the fact that he carries the physical scars of his ministry as a Christian, that is not where the battle has been being waged. It is against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Now, in other words, what he's saying is that in the midst of all these struggles that he has endured in the flesh, there sits behind them spiritual forces working in unison with them, seeking to get him. And Paul says, do not be fooled, Ephesians, into thinking that what you see and what you can feel is all that's happening to you as Christians. You need to be alert to the real enemy. Now, to Paul's original readers, the Ephesians, this wouldn't have come as a surprise. We actually see in Acts chapter 19 that they become Christians, and after a particularly botched exorcism, they actually get their magic books out of the cupboards and they burn them and say, all right, we're Christians now. 
Um, they were not strangers to the idea that their world was subject to the influence and power of evil spirits. That wasn't controversial. In fact, that was almost universally accepted, and it was certainly regularly experienced. But for us today in the modern West, this idea that there is something behind physical reality, it cuts across the very foundation of how we've been raised to think about our world. Because we're a materialist society. Our entirety of reality is physical matter. It's the things that we can feel and see and we can measure with our science. And anything that can't be measured is dismissed as superstitious nonsense. But this is not what Christians believe. We love the scientific method. It describes the world that God creates according to the laws that he created it to. But what we reject is the materialist presupposition that people come along and illegitimately attach to it. Because there is more to reality than mere matter, more to reality than what we can measure. And we know this because Jesus has confirmed it in his own life and ministry, hasn't he? His coming revealed not just the existence of the God who sent him, but an entire spiritual realm. And as we see him wander around Galilee and he heals sicknesses and he casts out demons declaring the conquering kingdom of God, we see something that is very uncomfortable, but according to Jesus, very true. Our world is under the shadow of darkness. And it's not just subject to the influence of, but it's actually ruled by demonic and sinister spiritual beings. Things and beings that don't want you reconciled to God and will do everything that they can to keep you in fear and sin and rebellion. Now, if that scares you, good. It's terrifying. But Paul's purpose here as he writes to these Christians all those years ago is not to cripple you or them with fear. He wants to make you wary. It's in the same way that I want to warn my daughter of the danger whenever she gets near a road. It's so that she'll behave in a way that will keep her safe. So there is fear. There's a kind of respect of the danger, but there isn't terror. So what is it that the devil is up to uh, so that we can be wary rather than terrified? What are the devil's schemes, as we see mentioned in verse 11? Well, we get a sense of what they are if we look at how he's compared to God in Scripture. Now, we could do this uh, in great detail. We're not going to just skim over some things. Uh, Where God is described as the God of truth, Satan is called the father of lies. We saw that in Genesis 3, right? He questions God's word. He, He purposely lies about it. Um, The children of God, this is in 1 John, they practice righteousness, but the children of the devil practice wickedness and disobedience. So if we could summarise it, if this is the CU's mission statement, proclaiming Jesus Christ at UWA to present everyone mature in him, this is Satan's mission statement. It's the exact opposite. It's rejecting Jesus Christ at UWA so that everyone will be condemned by him. And yes, those are the flaming arrows of the passage. I couldn't get the flame, wasn't technically strong enough. But it's an accurate mission statement. And understanding that that's his MO is important for us because it makes us alert to what his schemes will be. When we hear demonic activity, what we think is pop culture references, like little red creatures with horns that talk at the the end of, of your bed, eyes rolling at the back of your head, ghost stories, haunted houses, things that we would describe as supernatural experiences. But the devil is not a boogeyman. He's actually more like a criminal mastermind and he's intent on world domination. Because he wants people, including you, enslaved to sin and kept under the judgment of God. 
He might use scare tactics, but his schemes will include anything within his power to stop people putting their faith in Jesus and so be saved. Now, before you get the heebie-jeebies, you've got to understand that Satan's power is limited and provisional. It has always been like that. He has always been on a leash. Even in the book of Job, before he is cast out of heaven, he has to ask God permission to do things in the world. And so whatever influence he has, it is allowed to him by God. He is not a free agent. He is not the equal of God. But he is an active agent, someone seeking to deceive and tempt people away from a life of faith and back to a life of sin. And what Paul wants us to be aware of is that fact. And if you're not aware of that battle that you are in, whether you like it or not, then you won't equip yourself for victory. And when he bursts through the door, you will not have anything to hand to protect yourself. And so he wants us to know our real enemy. But second of all, and more importantly, he wants us to be aware of our sure defense. It's there in your outline. Let's begin with our orders. When you're in a war, every soldier in battle has specific orders to follow if the army as a whole is to experience victory. Now, God, not because he's not inventive, but because he's just a very simple strategist, has the same order for every single one of his people. We are to stand firm. And we see it there in the passage four times, don't we? Verse 11, take your stand. Verse 13, stand your ground. And again, at the end, after you've done everything, to stand And then verse 14, stand firm then. So Paul couldn't be clearer here. It is a defensive posture. You've heard of kind of take and hold missions. Well, this is just a hold mission. We already possess the territory. Our objective is to hold our ground in the victory of Christ. And so understanding that means that our spiritual struggle against these spiritual forces, the one that we're engaged in, is one of faithful endurance. But unfortunately, many well-meaning but deluded Christians have missed this. And what they do is they come along and write these great, crazy, fantastic books on spiritual warfare. And they redraw the battle lines and they reintroduce a wrong understanding of reality that we call dualism. You've got the the force of good on one side with God at the head and the force of evil with Satan at the head. And the outcome is in question. And depending on what we do as the operators of God granted his special power to kind of bind demons and kind of do things in the world to make sure that battle line shifts and we conquer territory, that's what they think is happening. But the problem with that sort of thinking is that it attributes a power to these demonic forces that they never really had, certainly not in the same way that they were equal to the forces of God and him, but that they now no longer have either. You see, the message of the gospel is not that these powers still need to be defeated. The message of the gospel is that they have already been defeated at the cross. And that changes the way that we engage in the warfare. Now, we see a hint of this throughout Ephesians. So, for example, and we can do a bit of Bible flipping here. If you go over to chapter 1, verse 20, you'll see, chapter 1, verse 20, that when Christ is raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, remember, this is where the spiritual beings, demonic forces are as well. He is seated, see there, verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked. And so Jesus, through his death and resurrection, now reigns over them. And we know that's the case because if you skim down to chapter 2, verse 2, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, who is at work in those who are disobedient, is losing his subjects. 
We too were once under Satan, Paul says in verse 3. But now people are becoming Christians. They're being rescued from his power, such that chapter 4, verse 8, we see this enigmatic quote from the Psalms where it tells us that Jesus ascends on high and as he does it, he takes many captives with him. And so to borrow a phrase, not from Ephesians, but Colossians, Jesus is rescuing people from the dominion of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom that he now rules that has conquered Satan. And we know that's the case because Jesus in John chapter 12 Revelation 12 tells us that Satan is defeated. He's hurled down from heaven. He still has agency in this world. Otherwise, we wouldn't have Ephesians 6. But he is a defeated enemy. And knowing that changes the way that we view things. And now, how he is defeated actually becomes really important for us too as well. And the answer we find to how he's defeated is not actually in Ephesians, but in the neighboring book in Colossians in chapter 2, verse 15. And I've got it here up on the screen for you. I'm going to ask you a question after this. So, so pay attention. Now, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In other words, when Jesus removes the penalty of our sin, the powers and the authorities that would have rule over us are disarmed. So my question for you and the person next to you is this. Why does the forgiveness of sins defeat Satan? Go to it. All righty. I'll pull you back in. Uh, because of time, I won't, I won't um, source answers from the floor, but I hope it was helpful. The answer has to do with where Satan's power actually lies. Uh, and we discover that in another little verse in Hebrews chapter 2. And again, I've got this one up on the screen for you. We're told that since the children, that is God's children, have flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So in other words, as long as we stand under the condemnation of God and are guilty for our sin, Satan can come along and accuse us and hold that over us. In fact, that's what Satan literally means. It means the accuser. That is his role. And so as soon as the penalty of our sin is removed and done away with on the cross, Satan no longer has anything to hold against us. You see, that's the basis of his power. Not some sort of weird metaphysical thing that can change the shape of things and turn you into a goat demon or whatever the case is. It is that he can point to you and say, you are a sinner and you deserve God's judgment. But when Jesus comes along and says, nah, Satan can't do a thing. His power has been broken. And that reshapes the way that we review the battle, right? Because the struggle against the spiritual forces of darkness, we don't fight for victory. We stand firm in the place where victory has already been won. So I could put it like this. We don't kind of live in a fantasy movie where it's all kind of about trading spells and battling supernatural monsters. That's a deception from Satan. If anything, the life we live is more like an espionage movie. Satan's aim is to get you to stop believing. And he'll do that by a variety of means. But most likely, it's not going to be some blatant spiritual manifestation. He's a defeated enemy. He has no power. 
In fact, the only thing he has left is to deceive you into thinking that the gospel that you have does not save you and does not free you from his power. His power is the lie. Now, we know now that that's the way that he attacks, and it's confirmed to us in the defense that Paul gives us in the armor of God. And we see that in the following verses. Now, because have a look at what God gives us to protect ourselves from Satan and his minions. Now, two times in the passage, Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God. Once in verse 11 and then the second time in verse 13. And this is the means by which we are to stand firm against the devil's schemes. Now, the armor consists of six pieces, a belt, a breastplate, shoes, a helmet, a shield and a sword. And all of these images are drawn from the book of Isaiah, who describes at various points God arming himself and equipping himself to go into battle on behalf of his people to vindicate and save them. And so what we are to do is to put on what God himself puts on as he wages war. And the thing to understand briefly before we move on from that is this armour is God's, it's not yours. Uh, In and of ourselves, we have no strength to persevere and stand firm in the faith. Just as we receive salvation as a gift, our continuance in salvation is also the gift of God enabled by his power. We need God's power. And that's why in verse 10, that kind of opening verse of our passage, Paul tells us to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. But what does it actually mean to be that, to do that? How do we put on the armour of God? Well, first of all, I think we need to work out what these various pieces are. So let's work through each one of them in turn. Let's start with the belt of truth. It's gone blue for some reason. We'll just live with it. Now, wherever truth is mentioned in Ephesians, it refers to gospel truth. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Or in chapter 4, verse 20, he says, This is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And so to fasten the belt of truth around your waist is to have a knowledge of and a conviction of the truth of the gospel. And it's to hold fast to it whenever Satan would make you doubt it. Second of all, the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this one's tricky because it could mean one of two things. It could mean the righteous standing that we're given in the gospel when God justifies us before him, or it could mean righteous living. And I think it could go either way. Uh, But given that the other references to righteousness in Ephesians are calls to righteous living, I think it makes more sense to understand putting on the breastplate of righteousness as simply living upright lives that reflect the righteousness of God. It is the putting on of the new self, if you remember back a couple of weeks ago. Created after the likeness of God in what? In true righteousness and holiness. Cool. And number three, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We saw earlier in the semester that the gospel of peace is the peace that Jesus brings. It's the peace between different factions of humanity. It's the peace between humanity and God. And if our feet are fitted with a readiness that comes from that gospel... We will not only seek to maintain and uphold the unity that we share amongst one another, but like the messenger in Isaiah where we draw this image from, we'll be ready to share that message with those around us. So we share the gospel. Number four, the shield of faith. To take up the shield of faith is simply to exercise faith in God's promises. It's to trust that what God says is true, especially when circumstances or feelings or people suggest otherwise. 
And so long as we continue to trust in the God who speaks to us and saves us, nothing Satan can do can harm us. It's why we're told that we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Because no matter which way he comes at us, no matter what he says, no matter what he does, if we trust God, we will stand. doesn't mean that we'll be immune to, to physical suffering or things like that. But our faith, our salvation, the eternal life that guarantees us into the next age cannot be touched. And so to hold fast to Jesus in faith is the way that we take the shield of faith up. And it gives us the confidence to know that he will protect us whenever Satan attacks. Fifth, the helmet of salvation. Uh, This is to put on a helmet. Uh, It's to rest in the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. As we saw in Ephesians 2, God, because of his great mercy and love towards us, saves us. And there is nothing that we do to achieve that. It is solely by his generous grace. And so we wear that salvation on our heads with the confidence knowing that no matter what Satan says, no matter what we do, no matter what happens, our standing with God, our promised salvation cannot be taken away. And then finally, the sixth piece of armour, which is technically a weapon, but apparently it's part of the armour, so let's just roll with it. The sword of the spirit, also known as the word of God. This is the only offensive weapon in the armour and it's a powerful one because it's on the word of God that our confidence in all the other pieces of the armour rests. It's our refuge, it's our strength, it's the thing that we turn to, the thing that we call to mind, the thing that we use to fight back against Satan when he challenges us. And against it, Satan cannot stand. Uh, And if you want proof of that, head over to Luke chapter 4, Jesus' temptation. Um, No matter what Satan does, no matter which angle he comes at Jesus, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, whether it's psychological, spiritual, whatever it is, because Jesus knew his Bible, he was able to stand firm in obedience to God, expectant that God would deliver him, and God did. And so that's the armour of God. I want you to look up on the screen and have a look at that, apart from the the, the dodgy graphics. What is the thing that you notice about that armour? Two things, I think, come to mind. One, it's all about the gospel. And second, it's actually really boring. The metaphor is awesome. The things that it represents, apart from the fact that the gospel saving sinners who deserve God's judgment is awesome, it actually just doesn't feel very supernatural, does it? There's no crazy spiritual spells or ritual prayers. And so the warfare that we wage, whilst it is profoundly spiritual, outwardly it's decidedly mundane. All it is is believing the gospel, living out the gospel, preaching the gospel. It is not fundamentally fantastic power encounters. You wage your warfare when you decide to read your Bible instead of going straight to bed. You choose to pray when you're stressed about an assignment. You wage your warfare when you choose not to gossip or to take that second look at the girl who walks past. You wage your warfare when you sin and instead of hiding from God because you're ashamed or you don't think he'll take you back, you respond in repentance, confident that Jesus' blood cleanses you from all sin and that your salvation can't be taken away from you. That's what your warfare looks like. And that's how we fight the powers of this dark age. You stand firm in the gospel. And as you do that and you resist Satan. James in his letter tells us that he will flee from you. There's not even like, you know, back and forth, like a set move, sword to sword. You resist, he's gone. That's what it is to put on the armour of God. 
Now, you may have some questions at this point, uh, because if spiritual warfare then is all about believing and living and preaching the gospel, then what do we do with all of the demon possessions and exorcisms that Jesus and the apostles did? And more than that, not just them, but what about my own experiences or the experiences of my auntie or whoever it is in your family or, or, or friendship circles that have expressed weird encounters with things that they could only describe as supernatural? Shouldn't we too be seeking these things out and casting out demons? But I think to think like that is to take what is descriptive in the Bible and make it prescriptive. But what God prescribes for us in his word is not the acts of the apostles kind of exorcism, not that it denies that as a reality, but it prescribes to us believers Ephesians 6 armour. It's not to deny that these things don't still happen or that people haven't experienced them, but curiously and perhaps frustratingly, the Bible remains agnostic over the particular details of the spiritual world, how it interacts, what it's made up of, how we experience it, how we interact with it. It just doesn't tell us. It just tells us that the thing that protects us from them all is a belief in the gospel because that's how we share in the power of God. It's not like one of those situations where you just have to trust that what God has given you is enough. You have enough certain knowledge and enough protection to be sufficiently protected. And so what that means then is we should regard people who create designations and different types of demons and different names and come up with these weird geographies that try to reconstruct a spiritual hierarchy of the world and, and kind of say, oh, well, there's haunting in, in this place and so you need to pray in this way uh, and, and you know, have different ways of removing the oppressions of demons and, and break down their strongholds and you have these specific deliverances ministries popping up. We need to regard every single one of them with suspicion. Not because they might not be true. It's possible that they're true but because God isn't the one telling us that it's true. And that means that we have zero confidence in our conclusions. Because think about this. If God isn't the one telling us, then there is only one other place that that information could be coming from, and that's the other side. And the one thing that we do have definitively told to us again and again by God in his word is that every single one of them is a deceitful liar. It is to give back power to things that have been stripped of their power by the gospel of Jesus. So what does it look like to wage spiritual warfare? Well, in this case, it's to have faith in what God has given us, that what he has told us in the Bible is enough, that God's ordinary and sufficient and powerful means of protection against the spiritually demonic is the gospel and a life that flows from its acceptance. Now, there's one more thing, I think, uh, that we need to think about in terms of our sure defence against Satan's schemes before we finish up. And it's not part of the armour, it's something that complements the armour. We see it there in verse 18. He kind of makes a bit of a sidestep and he says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, Words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now, interestingly, prayer, not even the sword of the spirit, this is the only active thing that we do in all of this. Everything else seems to kind of get put on us, but this is the one thing that we do kind of on the front foot. And like the armour, it's actually just garden variety Christianity. Praying in the Spirit, it's not some sort of special gifting or empowerment. It is simply praying in line with God's will as opposed to the will of the evil one and the world. 
And in fact, as you look over that command, the only thing that's extraordinary about the command to pray is the repetition of the word all. You notice it happens four times. We're to pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests, always praying for all the Lord's people. So the picture that Paul is painting here is that here is a life of the Christian that is drenched in prayer. No matter when it is, no matter what it is, no matter who it's for, they are praying and calling on God to act. Now, that kind of life doesn't just happen overnight, does it? It certainly doesn't come easily. I don't think that's the sort of thing uh, that I live out. I wonder whether it's the sort of thing that you live out. Prayer is a discipline. It's important to remember this. It's a habit that you train over many years, but it's one that every single one of us needs to resolve to develop because it is the only effective means that we have about, by bring, of bringing change in the world. And the reason that that's the case is because it calls upon the only one who can change the world, which is God, a God who has promised us that he will give us what we ask for. It's actually why we run the CU prayer meetings. It's an acknowledgement of this reality. Kind of go, oh, maybe that's a drain on resources, maybe we should just focus in on Bible studies or whatever rather than having kind of a daily prayer meeting. Well, the reason we do it is because we want to acknowledge that without prayer, nothing moves here. Proclaiming Jesus on campus to present everyone mature in Him is a pointless venture unless we are calling on God to act. We need to pray. And if I were to ask us about that practice of prayer, whether that practice of prayer characterizes your life, I suspect the answer would be no. We don't pray for spiritual protection, do we? We don't pray for the Christians around us. We don't pray that, as Paul asks us to pray, uh, which is that he would fearlessly spread the gospel in the face of Satan's opposition. Now, why is that? Why don't we? I think there's some very practical reasons. We're lazy. Uh, We don't think it's as important. But it kind of makes me wonder whether or not Satan is involved in this. Is this one of his schemes to put a stopper in the mouth of the church And convince us that prayer doesn't really work. Or to tempt us, if we do think it works, that it's just too hard. Or it doesn't really matter anyway. It's just another prayer on top of a whole bunch of other prayers that presumably other people are doing. And what I want to challenge us with this morning or this afternoon is that we shouldn't be okay with that. It's like living in a dangerous neighbourhood, in a house with the best security system in the world, but we never turn it on. And instead what we do is we leave ourselves open to be plundered, leave ourselves open for somebody to bash in the door and take us unawares. So how do we change? Well, it's really simple. There's always two steps to build a prayer life. You plan to pray and then you plan what to pray. Plan to pray, plan what to pray. You'll hear me say this a number of times over the course of your uni degrees here. Uh, All you need to do is put a daily time in your calendar and you need to have a list of things to pray for. It is that simple. And you can start like this. Just start with five minutes with five dot points. If you throw in the Lord's Prayer, you get some bonus there because you'll be praying for the kingdom because you're going through the thing. And you'll also be praying for deliverance from evil, uh, which will include Satan, right? So we're actually starting to tick some of the boxes that we're seeing in this passage. Five minutes, five dot points plus the Lord's Prayer. Start small. Don't go, all right, I'm going to be a prayer warrior. Three hours a day, I'm getting up at 4 a.m. tomorrow morning. Wednesday morning is going to be the day that changes my life. Just start small, kick some goals, secure the habit, and then you can start to expand. How long you pray, how much you pray for, who you pray for. But whatever it is, your long-term goal should be verse 18. Praying in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers for all of God's people. And just to be clear, even though that's your long-term goal, I'm not talking about when you're 60. I'm talking about when you're 25. Okay? 
Don't be like, oh, I'll get there one day. You're not going to get there tomorrow, but let's strive to be these people as soon as we can be, praying in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers for all God's people, alert and watchful for the needs of those around us. Uh, maybe one possible way you could do this is to join us at the CU prayer meetings. Always easier to pray with people than by yourself because you start to zone out and start to think about things. But that's just a possibility. So let me finish by saying this. As we finish up and wrap up the series in Ephesians, you need to ask yourself, how will you arm yourself? Because if you're a Christian, the message of Ephesians is quite clear. You have been rescued United to Christ, saved by his generous grace, granted every spiritual blessing. It is a vista of wonder, and I hope that it has excited you over the last couple of months. But what we're seeing in this last chapter is that there exists a person, a being, Satan and his forces, who want to take all of that away from you. And so how will you stand firm? Will you enter the battle naked, either disbelieving or disregarding the threat? Will you try to forge your own armour? Take matters into your own hands, dabble in a bit of supernatural looking, but ultimately stupid practices that go beyond scripture? Or will you choose to hold fast to the gospel, the salvation that God in his grace gives to you, that can never be taken from you, that enables you to stand your ground against the real enemy of humanity? Because understand this, if you would be free from Satan's tyranny, if you would be uh, confident and protected from his schemes then your only hope is the gospel of God and the salvation that comes from believing. It is the only thing you need. It is the only thing you have. Wear it and so no longer be in fear.